everybody. Welcome back to the Servant Leadership Institute podcast. First off, we just want to thank you for listening and showing your support. This channel's community is growing and it's so great to watch. For this episode, we are bringing you a full presentation from our 2019 Servant Leader Conference that wrapped a few weeks ago. Vicki Clark is one of our favorite presenters speaking at now three of our conferences. This time, she talked about diversity and inclusion making us able. This presentation is rich with content, so make sure you are equipped to take notes. We hope you enjoy. Hi, it's after lunch. And they put an old black woman from Memphis up here to talk about diversity and inclusion. And to come behind Ken and Art. Thank you all so much. It, it, thank you for being here. Uh, and it is my pleasure to, to be here uh, and to share with you a topic that this is not, you've heard the word movement. Movement, everybody keeps talking about the movement. Let me say something about this movement toward diversity and inclusion. I think we thought, and I am a boomer, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I was a teenager. I was 15 years old the day Martin Luther King was killed, 15 minutes from my house. We thought that when the laws changed, we thought that when there was open access and when a person like me could come to the Western and when people like me could go on an airplane and that I could go to any college that I wanted to and that I could go in stores and try on clothes and that I could go to different dances and things like that, we thought that things would change. But what we didn't understand, that it's not laws that change is people. That's why the topic of diversity and inclusion and servant leadership is so important because it takes people who change the way we think. Kelly, where are you? Okay, you asked them a question. When did they think they had failed? Let me tell you something, I'm a work in progress. Somebody's like, lady, you're an old black woman from Memphis. You live 15 minutes from where Martin Luther King got killed. You, rem you remember the two water fountains. Yes, I do remember the two water fountains. I am wearing a necklace. Of course, it's not real because my mother had no real jewelry. Uh, but we used to go downtown. Two water fountains. I'd say, can I get water? She goes, no. We get water when we get home. We don't get water. She was the first diversity advocate. She goes, no, we don't drink out of either one of those. We get water when we get home. They didn't have bottled water back then. And in the late 50s, you didn't talk back to your mother. You just went like, okay, and just went along. <laughs> you asked when you have failed. Let me tell you my own story about are we able. I think we are able, and I always love the dictionary because the concept of able, I look it up, it says having the power. And you heard Ken talk about the power. And you heard Art talk about the power. Having the skill, having the means, or the opportunity to do something. We have all that to get along. We really do, but we have to use it. But I am a work in progress, and I got just as much junk and stuff and bias as anybody sitting in this room. Somebody's like, oh no, she's supposed to have it all together. Oh honey, I don't have it all together. <laughs> and I know that I don't have it all together. And I know that I'm a work in progress, and I will tell you in a little bit about a story, but the idea that are you able? I believe we are able. Why don't we get along? Why can't we get along? We don't know each other. 
And years ago, we didn't know each other because we were totally separated from each other. And guess what? We are now separated from each other again. And we thought that all our little devices were going to bring us all together. And we're gonna, we were all going to, somehow we were going to technologically hold hands and sing kumbaya, you know? And it's only divided us worse. I use technology, but I know that we have to put the humanness back in it. I got to get to know you. I need to get to know more Generation Z people. I hope Generation Z people want to get to know me. I want to seek out those World War II people. I want to meet people from different cultures. I love Joe Nequinabe. Joe Nequinabe from Malax Corporate Ventures constantly forces us to understand more about Native American culture which I have never known much about, even though people always whisper to black people, you know we got some Native American in us, you don't. <laughs> they didn't say Native American, I was gonna go, you know we part Indian, it's like, okay. But that was as far as we knew. And at that time, we were so ignorant, we went to the movies and we rooted for the cowboys. Cause we didn't know. We're all a work in progress. And so the idea that we have to get to know each other, and you've heard a lot about listening and communication. We have to listen to each other's stories. I want to know about your stories. I learned about Diwali, the Muslim lights, and all of that. It's just amazing. We've got to get to know each other. But I will tell you this, it's complicated. It is extremely complicated. You've got five generations of people. You got people from all different backgrounds. You got people of different gender. It is Women's History Month. Do you know that? Let's hear it for the women. It wasn't until in the 1970s that there was a Women's History Month. I don't know where we were before then. But somehow in the 70s, somebody said we need Women's History Month. And so we have a month. When I was a little girl, we had Black History Week. And now we have Black History Month. Last month, I'm not getting into why it's the shortest month. That's not my issue. I'm just glad we got a whole month. <laughs> but the idea that this is complicated. We got native origin. We got socioeconomics. We got where do you live? I remember being told when I went north to Missouri from Tennessee, like 200 miles, really? When I went north, they said, don't act like a southerner. You better lose that southern accent. Because the first time somebody hears a southern accent, they think your IQ goes down. So they told me not to be a southern. I was like, okay, don't be a southerner. Then when I got a job, they said to me, you might not want to act too black. <laughs> I was like, okay, I can't be a southerner. I can't be black. Okay. Then somebody said, and those of you who are in human resources, you can't do this now, but they used to. They said things like, you might not want to wear bright colors or flowers or act too much like a girl. Okay, I can't be a girl. I can't be a southerner. Okay, okay, I can't be black. Okay, then they said, and if you have like family pictures or if you have kids, I wouldn't suggest you put them out because it'll make people think that you're not professional. Okay, I can't be a mom. I can't be a mother. I can't be black. I can't be southern. I can't be a girl. Who was I supposed to be, Casper? <laughs> but the idea that we, for, because we don't accept people for who they are, we force them to assimilate. That the, if in your organization, the only way somebody can be successful 
is to be like you, we got problems. Because we can't assimilate forever. I have to be me. We're going to talk a little bit about this melting pot, but it's very complicated. And now you can't look at people and tell who they are, what they are, where they're from. We're in California. We don't even know how old anybody is out here. <laughs> so you can't tell anything about anybody. The ladies just made me up. Whether you can tell or not, I'm all glammed up. I don't look like this every day. Uh, but the idea is that it is this, and, and it, is, it has to do with abilities. And how do we look down on people who haven't the same degrees? You heard Ken talk about MBAs. We have created not a servant leadership culture, this hierarchical culture where there's some people at the top who tell some people at the bottom what to do. And if the people at the bottom don't look like, act like, sound like, the people at the top, we're out unless we turn into them. Why should I have to morph into somebody else in order to be accepted? And do I have to do that in your organization, in your company, in your nonprofit, in your school? The first thing is we can't change what we refuse to confront. This is real. And I am not up here to make anybody feel guilty. That's not what I do. I like to open up a dialogue. But we have to confront it that we have an issue around not diversity, because we're very different. We have an issue around inclusion, we got issues around bias, and we got issues around privilege. Because that's where it is. So those types of things. We're diverse, we're all different in this room. We're very different. So it's okay to confront in your organization. And I am not talking about the checkoff. We have had our 45 minute diversity and inclusion workshop. And we can check that off. And everybody's supposed to go back to their desk or their cubicle or wherever it is, and we're all supposed to be fine now because we've had our diversity and inclusion workshop. This is, they keep talking about heart. This is heart work. But it's also hard work. And it's okay to confront it. It's okay to go back and have a conversation and ask people, when you hear the word diversity, when you hear the words inclusion, when you hear the word bias, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? But you gotta have a safe place where it's okay for people to say what they feel. You have to. No more melting pot. I told you, they tried to melt me down. You know how much melting down you'd have to be to make me? They tried to melt me down. They tried to turn me into a northern woman who didn't, you know, who didn't have a southern accent, who didn't have any kids, uh, who didn't like fun things and all of that. It didn't work. It, I refused to be melted down. But that's what that melting pot did. And the melting pot was a time, probably in the late 70s and 80s, when it said, we're not going to see differences. My oldest son, I think I raised him like that, because that was what we were told. We're not going to see differences. Everybody's the same. We're not. And guess what? It's OK. It's OK that you see me for who I really am, and it's OK that I see you for who you really are. So we don't want to melt anybody down. When you melt everybody down, all you get is a glob. So when you melt everybody down in your organization, you just got a glob of people who are all trying to be one thing. You think they can produce? No, because they're too busy trying to not have their accents, not act a certain way. Not, that's what they're focused on. But it's OK. So let's just get rid of the melting pot. Now we talk about the tapestry. The tapestry, where you see all the threads. And everybody's thread is different. My thread is older, is bigger is browner, 
you know, it's more Southern, but it's in there. And everybody's got a thread in the tapestry. And you know what else happens with a tapestry? If you pull one of the threads out, what happens? The whole thing starts to come apart. So the idea that think of your organization and your company as a tapestry and that we're equal in value, no matter what our color, no matter our age, no matter where we came from, no matter our degrees, no matter our abilities. So think of it as a tapestry that's rich in colors and widths and designs and different fabrics. It's so important. I hate to tell you this, we really are all connected. Human beings are herd animals, you do know that. We were designed to be together. We were really designed to be together. People, they have, we have tried to separate ourselves. We've done it with, with uh, communities, with redlining. We've done it with all kinds of things. You can't do it, we're all connected. We are all connected, whether you want to be or not. And the first thing we have to do is accept that, that we can't isolate ourselves. I can't isolate myself from the Generation Z people. I can't isolate myself from people who are different than me. Oh, I think it'd be lovely if the whole world was like me. Everybody be left-handed. You do know that the world was designed for right-handed people, and the rest of us just have to fit in. So if the world was designed for people like me, everybody be left-handed, everybody be wearing elastic waist pants, <laughs> everybody be wearing flat shoes, cute flat shoes, but shoes, and everybody have crazy curly hair, and that'd be my world. I think that'd be really boring. I don't mind being connected. I want to be connected to all different types of people. And I think often in organizations, and I've worked in an organization where if you didn't make yourself fit in, you didn't fit in. And there was this assimilation factor. And you didn't tell people that you were tired because guess what? We don't get tired in this organization. We're not human. I love what Art said about serve the life, not the ideology. Every life is different. I tell you what though, every life is valuable. Every life is valuable. And why do we devalue people because of where they came from? Why do we devalue people because of where they work in the organization? Oh, that's that unit. That's that unit. That's that department. Those are the housekeepers. Those are the, you know, those are the administrative people. Oh, those are the tech people. Oh, those are the people. I love the C-suite. The C-suite. These are the C-suite people. First time somebody said that to me, I said, so what does that mean? Well, you know, these are, they're the C-suite people. So how are they different? What's the other suite numbers? And what's the other suite names? Well, no, we just call them the C-suite people. So this labeling. Oh, my gosh, we do so much labeling. And I don't think we label to help and to make connections. We label to divide and to show differences. And the idea that every life is valuable. Advocacy. You got to advocate. You got to speak up. Somebody says, I see somebody sitting out there now going, lady, this all sounds fine. I work in a large organization. What, how am I supposed to change it? What did Art and Ken just tell you? You change it from where you sit. Somebody says something crazy, you don't hit them because servant leaders don't hit people. Well, sometimes they do, but <laughs> not all the time. What you do is you ask them, where's that coming from? Have they thought about it in a different way? We have to become advocates for diversity and inclusion. This, you know, we know what should be. It's not like we don't know. 
And it troubles me so deeply when I see 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds marching in Charlottesville. Where did that come from? What is that about? They grew up in a pluralistic society. They met all kinds of diverse people. Why are they talking about blood and sand? Where is this coming from? We know what should be. An advocate changes what he is into what should be. And that's what we have to be advocates for, diversity and inclusion. And we have to talk about it. And it's okay to talk about it. In fact, if you don't talk about it, there's something wrong. We can talk about the budget. We can talk about performance appraisals. We can talk about the market. We can talk about all kinds of things, but we cannot talk about diversity and inclusion. Everybody gets scared. And Lord, don't let a black person get up and say something about it. Because then everybody thinks it's on. So then we go into camps. You know, and the camps aren't good. It's not like campgrounds. We go into the camps where this is my camp and this is your camp, and we're going to make sure that these camps never come together. What should be? What should be is that every life is valued. And that if you even are on the beginning of your servant leadership journey, which I definitely feel like I am, I have to value every life. I loved Ken's idea showing us his daughter's tattoos. As an older boomer, I can't tell you the conversations I've had with my friends about tattoos. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I said, wait a minute. We were the ones who wanted people to accept us. In the 60s, we wanted to be accepted. We wanted to be able to go to different places. We wanted people to see us for who we are. So why are we now ragging on people with tattoos? And for some of them, I got pictures of them in skirts and things that would curl your hair. <laughs> so you have to put people in check sometimes. The first person we have to put in check is ourselves. We really do. We have to put, and I have to put myself in check a lot because I'm just like everybody else. You wouldn't be at this conference if you didn't want to create a just and caring world. Is there anybody here who does not want to create a just and caring world? If you don't, leave now. But I'm from the South, take a plate. They got some cookies or something else like that. <laughs> See, in the South, when, we, when you leave, people say, oh, take a plate, honey. Let me wrap something up for you. So if you don't want to create a just and caring world, leave now, but take a brownie or something like that. Because it's the wrong group for you. Because we're all here, because in our own way, we want to create a just and caring world. Individually, every conversation, we have an opportunity. Every email, we have an opportunity. Every encounter, we have an opportunity to create a just and caring world. By the way, we talk to people. By the way, we think about other people. So that's what this is all about. That's what servant leaders do. Our paths are different. We've all had different paths. Some people have had it easy. Some people have struggled. Our paths are different, and that's okay. And I need, you heard the word empathy. I need to be able to meet you where you are. I am not mad at all the right-handed white people. You notice I got my priorities in order. <laughs> I am not. I got to meet you where you are, which means I move over when I sit at a table from you, not because you're white, but because I don't want to bump you with my left hand. <laughs> Our paths are different, and it's okay. And in fact, that's the way it should be. The, the path of, of, of life Somebody once said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him what plans you have for your life. 
And the idea that we've had different paths and different people have had different opportunities. But we can't shy away from the reality. See, that's what happens with a movement. It has to keep moving. And I think in the late 70s, a lot of us, somebody said we all got cable TV and we went to sleep. Because access had opened up. And that was part of what the civil rights movement was about. It was about access. And we could move anywhere. I raised my children in the suburbs of Houston. I now live back in the city of Memphis. I moved back in the house I grew up in. I moved back into the house that my parents purchased when I was 10 years old in a neighborhood where the first round of black people that moved in had crosses burned in their yard. People told my mother, that little bitty woman that wore this necklace, people said to her, you don't want to live in that neighborhood. She was fierce. She was an advocate. She was a school secretary in the 50s. That woman ran the world, you know. <laughs> and she said, nobody tells me where I can live. The law says I can live where I want to. Well, by the time they got the down payment together, it was three years later, and I guess the cross burners had gotten bored, and they were gone. And I moved back into that house after my father died. I moved back into that city. We have a troubled city in Memphis. People say to me things like, oh, why didn't you move to Germantown? I said, because I moved back in my house. I moved back into the house that my parents purchased. Because the reality is that I have a debt to pay. I have a debt to pay to that city. I have a debt to pay that my folks started paying. We each have a debt to pay. Let's take a look at this. Many of you have seen this. Take a look at the tall boy, equality. Did he ever need a box? No, he could always see over it. See, we went, we've gone through lots of iterations of this. We're going to give everybody everything. We're going to give everybody the same thing. So we gave the tall boy a box. He didn't need it. We gave the middle boy a box. He needed it. We gave the little boy a box. Didn't help him a bit. So I'm sure he's going like, so what is this box for? I still can't see. The reality is somebody always going to have more boxes. Always going to have more boxes. The thing is, how do you use your boxes? That's privilege. How do you use your boxes? So let's change the story. The boy still got his box. The middle boy still has, has his box. We take the box from the boy in the middle. He didn't need it anyway. You know, right now what's going on is things that people didn't need. When, people, when it moves, people feel like they've been oppressed. He didn't need it. The other boy needed two boxes. In my mind, what the tall boy did was took all his boxes down and knocked the wall. He knocked it down, and he liberated all three of them. And everybody now can play in the game. That's what you do with your privilege. That's what I do with my privilege. I try to make things better for other people. That's what we have to do as servant leaders. That's what it's all about. We use our privilege to help liberate others. You say, liberate? You have no idea how many people in your organization don't feel liberated. They're afraid. They're afraid to talk. They're afraid to say certain things. They're afraid to confront certain things. You have to be the liberator. You have to be the liberator. This idea of creating this better world. You say, well, the whole world. Create the better department. Create the better unit. Create the better family. 
So now this idea of inclusion, you say, okay, we're diverse, the world has opened up, I can go any place I want to, I can walk into the Western, I can go out to eat, all that kind of thing, but am I included? I can be here, but am I really included? Your environment has to be where people feel a sense of inclusion. Somebody said it's getting invited to the dance and being asked to dance to music that you can relate to. That's what inclusion is. This idea of making sure that people feel like they belong. Does everybody belong in your organization? Do they feel like it? Do we make sure that they feel like they belong? Or is it we just designed for a certain few? The, the inclusive piece is so important about getting the mix to work. Because there's diversity all over. But how does it work? A few years ago, a little boy in Florida who was on the autism spectrum, he ate lunch by himself every day. He's in the third grade. His mother calls school every day. Can you help? Can you help? He comes home crying. School said, have him go to a table and sit down with the other kids. Well, when he got anxious, he had a little Tourette's. Can you imagine being eight years old and you walk up to a table full of kids who've already talked about you because you're a little different and his Tourette's kicks in. There he goes, back to the table by himself. Every day, three years, Florida football team comes over. They come over to meet the kids, hang out with the kids. One of the players saw this little boy sitting by himself. He didn't know his story. He just thought this little guy's sitting by himself. I'm going to go talk to him, and I'm going to give him my jersey. All of a sudden, this little boy was included. Oh, the school was diverse. All kinds of kids with all kinds of abilities could go to that school, but it was in no way inclusive. They had done nothing to make sure that he could be the best and that he felt included. And it took someone from the outside to show the educators what they needed to do. What do you need to do in your organization to make sure that people feel included? One of the things we can do is stop with the acronyms. Because, you know, only the inside people know those. It's very cool. You know, we talk about, you know, Weight Watchers is now WW. <laughs> it's still about losing weight. So if I don't say Weight Watchers, it don't mean I'm, I'm, I'm on the WW plan. My grandson would say to me, you gonna be a wrestler, Grandma Vicky?" <laughs> like, no. And trust me, I'm not on the WW plan. But the idea that the acronyms and the, the language that we use separates us. Because you know, you only certain people know the little acronyms, because only the cool kids know that. So the idea is I can't be my best if I don't understand what you're talking about. And how many people in a meeting are gonna stand up and say, excuse me, could you tell me what you're saying? No, no. And all the acronyms, and I know it's very cute and it's very clever and all that we do, L-M-A-O, as if I could, you know, you know, work on that one for a minute. One, two, three. If you don't know what it means, as he says, Google it. This is where we start, this is where my life started, down in the corner, it's with segregation. I didn't know many people who were unlike me, but I knew some. Some of my friends didn't know anybody who 
was different than them. But my family did. We knew some other people. And so that's where we started. And there we were, outside in that little bubble. And we were doing our thing. And we could not get in. We couldn't get in. But people fought so that we could get in. Like you heard yesterday, it was the 54th anniversary of what they call Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, when people marched on the Edmund Pettus Bridge so that people could get the right to vote. They were fighting to get in. I stood on that bridge, and when I stood on that bridge, the police were protecting me because they closed it down so that we could actually take a picture of a leadership team that I was working with. And the police were there protecting us. They were not there beating us. I have met the, one of the organizers who has since passed away. They called him the Gang of Eight. Eight people who said, we can do this in Selma. We can do this in Selma, Alabama. He said, we knew we were taking our lives into our hands. We knew we were putting our families in jeopardy. He said, but it was worth it. These were the people who fought to open up that bubble. The next thing that we kind of went to was you had this exclusion kind of thing. You're out there and you're, on, you're doing your own thing. I know there are lots of organizations. People had to start their own organizations because we couldn't get into the other organizations. So people said, well, what about all these organizations where we can't get in? We couldn't get into any organizations. I went to a segregated school. Do not feel sorry for me. Don't go poo, poo, poo. I had some amazing teachers. I may have gotten a book from some girl in East Memphis whose name was Hillary, but I had, now what I know is I had servant leader teachers. I didn't know that term then. We had teachers who cared about us and who told us that we could be anything. And that didn't matter that we didn't fit into these bubbles, but that we had to be stronger and that we had to be better and that we could do it. And they told us that because guess what they had? They had a vision for us that nobody could see. Because you didn't see people in the 60s doing things that we are doing now, but they had that vision and they told us that we could be that. And they told us and they didn't make us hateful and angry. They were servant leader teachers. Ms. Burchard and Ms. Green took a bunch of black kids from Memphis to the World's Fair in 1965 in New York. Oh my gosh. I remember the newspaper, Negroes go to New York. Negro students go to New York. And there we were on the front of the paper. It's like, wow, Negro students go to New York. Do you see what those women did? We stayed in hotels. People didn't do that in 1965. They took us all the way to the Canadian border and back because they wanted us to see things that we had not seen. We went to the White House. We went to George Washington's house. We went to the Potomac. We went to, to New York. We did all of that because some people who were servant leaders believed in us and believed in a vision that we couldn't see. Soon after that, integration came and we were like okay we're in now we are in and yes we were in but we were still in our own little bubble we were still in our own little bubble i was not uh, part of the school integration that little fierce woman said you're not ready and they're not ready some of my friends who were part of the first group of kids who went to the newly integrated schools in memphis had a very tough time they had a very tough time these were the best of the best kids. 
They sent the best and the brightest to schools where people ignored them. I'm not talking about other students, I'm talking about teachers. They couldn't be in any clubs. They couldn't go to any dances. They couldn't be on any teams. And nobody talked to them. And we called it integration. What we're hoping for is inclusion. I can still be me. You can still see my dot. My left-handed, brown, plus-size, southern dot. My left-handed, plus-size, southern, curly-head dot. You can still see it in there, but it's that we're all in there together. And I have as much to learn from you as you have to learn from me. How inclusive is your organization? And I'm not talking about that you put a ramp in and that you celebrate Cinco de Mayo and that you talk about George Washington Carver on Black History Month and that you're going to go back and put some pictures of some women up because I said it was Women's History Month. You know, I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are the beginning. We got to go deeper than that. We got, this ain't no game. This is real. Unless we learn how to live together, we're going to perish. We're going to perish. I'm an old Trekkie. I loved uh, the old Star Trek. Oh my gosh, what did Gene Roddenberry say? He only talked about men because they only talked about men back then. He said, if man is to survive, he will have learned to take a delight in the essential differences between men and between cultures. He will learn that differences in attitudes, aptitudes are a delight. Imagine delighting. I know people whose skin was much darker than me who use bleaching cream because nobody delighted in dark-skinned people. I know people who do strange things with their hair because nobody delighted in their hair. I know people who've done strange things to their noses because nobody delighted in their noses. I remember myself. My mother used to wear half slips, cotton half slips. Anybody old enough in here to remember half slip, cotton half slips? Okay. Tell it truth. She she putting the truth up there. And because my hair wouldn't move, one day I took the cotton half slip, put it on my head and stood in the mirror and tried to make it swing. Miss Thing came in there and snatched it off my head. She said to me, what are you doing? So I want to see what it's like to have hair that moves. First she told me how much it cost to buy the slip and how long she had to work to buy the slip and that you don't treat things like that, you take care of your stuff. And then she said, what's the difference if your hair moves or not? It's your hair. I like your hair. You all like your hair. I said, but the other people's hair moves. She said, yeah, that's their hair. And we like their hair, but we like our hair. And Because people delighted, they didn't tell us to delight. I remember one of my friends, got a black doll, and she didn't want the black doll because people told her that the black doll was ugly. And they have done studies where they have kids to choose years ago between a black doll and a white doll. And the kids chose the white doll, the black kids chose the white doll because they were told that the black doll, there was something wrong with the black doll. She wasn't pretty. So this idea of delighting and that it's part of life's excitement and variety and it's not something to fear. You don't need to be scared of me. You don't need to be scared of my sons. I have two adult sons. They're my sons. They're big. I'm going to tell you when I put myself in check. Sitting on the parking lot. 
Memphis, Tennessee. Sun's going down. I'm waiting on a friend. Come out of a restaurant, and I see a young black man coming up the street, and he's wearing a hoodie. You know what the hoodie has come to represent? A black man or a black young man in a hoodie? And when my spidey sense started, I started fighting with myself. I said, who are you? If somebody did that to your sons, you would go crazy on them or to your grandson. But I felt what I felt, and I'm owning what I felt. Because you know why? Somebody talked about the media. Every city that I go to, the first 20 minutes of every newscast is about what somebody has done to somebody else. And it's usually somebody of color in a hoodie. And I thought to myself, you teach about diversity and inclusion. You better put yourself in check, honey. And I watched him and he didn't see me. He weighed 100 pounds. If he had come near me, I could have taken him. What was I scared of? I ain't have nothing to be scared of. Don't forget, I'm an older person. And we keep hearing about crimes against older people. That boy didn't even see me. I had to constantly work on my cultural competence. This idea that, and that's why I'm telling, I'm standing up in front of all of you and telling you my failure. When Kelly asked about that, I thought, I guess I got to tell them. I have to tell them what I felt. And I told my sons what I felt. And my youngest son said, yeah, mom, that's the way people feel when they see me. That's the way people feel. And I said, that's not the way I want to feel, and that's not the way I want people to feel. We have to bring value to these discussions. We have to learn from others. I don't know much about millennials, and I know very little about Zs. My granddaughter is a Z. But I want to learn about them. I want to learn about other cultures. I want to learn about people who are different from me, their history, my history. I also want to uphold principles and practices of diversity and inclusion. And that doesn't mean locking my car door when I see somebody with a hoodie on. Now, it don't mean throwing my pocketbook out the window either. But what it means is that I've got to make sure that I constantly work on this. Just like we talk about working on servant leadership, it's a journey, and I need to be transparent. That's why I'm telling you this story. I need to be receptive. I need to hear the stories where you tell me I have been uncomfortable. I had something horrible happen to me by a person who was different than me, and that's why I feel like I feel. And I have to be receptive, and I have to be respectful, and I have to be responsive. Because the only way we're going to break this down is that we're able to talk about it. And that's the most important thing. We got to think about our thinking. I sat there in that car that night, and I thought about my thinking, and I got angry. And like I said, my spidey sense went up, and I started sweating. Then I started crying because I thought to myself, what are you doing? You're doing what the world does. You gotta be different. You gotta be different. So think about your thinking. Art is always challenging us to think about, why do I think like that? What makes you think like that? What makes you suspect of somebody who doesn't look like you, who didn't come from where you come from, who doesn't have the same degree, who doesn't have the same abilities? What makes you suspect? We gotta work on it. We all got hidden biases. We all have them. They are hidden, they are unconscious, and they are automatic. 
We were designed to have biases because way back in the cave days, if something was different from us, it meant it was bad. It was usually a saber-toothed tiger. Okay, so we can just take them off the list. They're gone. But often it was people from another tribe. Here we go with our tribalism. And the other tribe, and usually the tribes were at war. Let me say something, folks. We don't need to be at war. Servant leaders don't need to be at war with anybody. First thing is we don't need to be at war with ourselves. And we need to stop. We have to address our biases, and we have to own it. And again, don't think that because you know somebody who's a person of color that we don't have biases. We got some of the same biases that you have. So acknowledge that you have them. It would be wonderful if in your company, in your organization, you had everybody list their bias. Ooh-wee. Put them on a sticky. And please don't go around trying to figure out whose handwriting that is. <laughs> and let's talk about these biases and why we have these biases. Because we all have them. And you can't hide them for long. And you know when they come out? When you're stressed. There's something called confirmational bias. So when somebody does something that you already have a bias against, when a young person does something, and then it says, see, they all do that. They all do that. So in your company, when a young person that you have groomed takes another job, see, they're not loyal. They're not loyal. The world is different. This is not about loyalty. That's confirmational bias. So now we got all the young people in the disloyal box. You see someone of a different race doing something. See, that's the way they all act. We don't all act the same way. Trust me, if you've seen one black person, you've seen one black person. There is nothing that we all do alike. If you've seen one woman, you've seen one woman. If you've seen one Asian, you've seen one. If you've seen one anything, if you've seen one person with different abilities, you've seen one. There, we are not all alike. We are all different. Oh, and when we get distracted, that's when the emails, what I call the nasty start flying. Do you know why she did that? She always does that. People like her always do that. When we just stereotyping, I hate stereotyping. I have been the victim of stereotyping. In, and sometimes stereotyping can be fun, but often it's, it's destructive. It's when it becomes destructive. I met some very young women during the holidays, and there's a stereotype about African-American grandmothers from the South. And it was during the holidays, and they were, um, they were caregivers for a friend of mine's son. And they said to me, Miss Vicki, what are you going to do? What are you going to cook for the holidays? So they made an assumption that I cook. Because I'm an old black grandmother from the South, so I must cook, right? So what are you going to cook? Well, then I went into theater of the absurd. And any of you who have known me for more than five minutes know that I can easily slip into theater of the absurd. I told them I was going to make ham. I was going to pick greens. I was going to make cobbler. I was going to make a turkey. I was going to make cr cranberries from scratch. And I was actually going to uh, make big salads and make pies and all of that. And my best friend is sitting there laughing her head off. And they said, what's so funny, Miss Carolyn? She said, that woman don't cook. <laughs> On holiday, she goes around looking for a dinner, you know? <laughs> she goes from house to house looking for a dinner. That woman don't cook. I have done my time in the kitchen. So I thought about my grandchildren. 
And I thought about this whole stereotype about the type of grandmother. And I don't cook and things like that. And I take them on trips because we travel. I travel and so I just add them on, things like that. And I thought to myself, maybe I need to do more of that other grandmother stuff. See, you, sometimes you question yourself. You ever question yourself about who you are or who you think you're supposed to be because that's what the world is telling you? Is your company telling people who they're supposed to be or are you allowing them just to be who they need to be? So I thought to myself, maybe I should start doing some of this stuff like cooking and, and having big dinners and we don't live near each other and bringing them to Memphis and things like that. And then something said self, that's how I talk to myself, said self, you better stop this. You're okay who you are. Kind of like what that woman told me about my hair a long time ago. You're okay who you are. When they're standing over that open grave, they won't be saying, we're going to miss her cobbler. We're going to miss her pie and her pound cake. They're going to be saying, it was so much fun when we went to the Western and we ordered room service. We're going to miss that. We're going to miss getting on the plane. We're going to miss going to libraries and museums. And guess what? That's okay. It's okay that I be me. Are you allowing people to be okay with who they are, specifically and when they get relaxed? Identify your biases, dissect them. Where is it coming from? I had to think about why when I saw that young man walking across that parking lot, where it came from. And I thought, because I am assaulted with pictures of people who look like him, even though I know mine are like him. And I, that were crimes against the elderly and all that. You have to dissect these biases. Which ones you gonna work on first? It's a journey. What are you gonna work on first? And then the idea is look for common interest groups. And no, I'm not talking about, okay, all the racists line up over here, all the misogynists line up over here, all the homophobics in the back. You know, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But it has to be okay for us to talk about these issues. Because what we don't talk about, we can't fix. And then ideas, we get rid of them. We just, we say, okay, I'm going to work on this and then be careful of the kickback because it'll definitely come back on you. It's, a, it's just a constant work in progress. You just got to keep working it. Creating this just and caring world. And it may start, Art started talking about family today. Maybe you start with creating a just and caring you. Maybe you, the next step is a creating a just and caring family. Then a just and caring department then a just and caring company, or a just and caring organization, or a just and caring community of faith, or a just and caring group of your friends. And guess what? If we all did that, we'd have this just and caring world that we all say we want. You have to be, first of all, when we look at this destructiveness, cultural destructiveness, that means that it's only for those that was, who was designed for. Only for those. I remember I met a woman in Missouri. She was one of the first women in the Missouri State House. There was no women's bathroom. She went to somebody and said, excuse me, I'm here. We need a women's bathroom. Oh, see, the whole world was designed for men in that case. Then we get to incapacity. That next piece of cultural incapacity is where we know other people are there, but we're not going to do anything to include them. Then we went to blindness, where everybody's alike. That didn't work. 
I hope we are all at the pre-competence stage where we're exploring our own issues and we're wanting to learn about other cultures and other people and that it's okay that they are who they are. Then we move to cultural proficiency. When we are starting to redesign systems, to really redesign thinking and redesign systems so that we are inclusive. I hear people when they talk about things like, oh, and you can bring your husband. I'm like, no, I'm not bringing him. We're divorced. Uh, I'm not mad at him, but I ain't taking him nowhere. <laughs> you know, everybody don't have a husband. And how we think about how we define family. My oldest son and his wife, they don't have children. They are still a family. I can tell you how many people walk up to them and say, so, when are you going to have a family? And I said to them, say, we are a family. And to add complexity, they happen to be an interracial couple. Somebody has walked up to my daughter-in-law and said, so what's it like to be married to a black man? She said, that's the only man I've ever been married to. <laughs> I told her to say that. She called me crying. She called me crying because somebody in her workplace, Chris came over and brought something to her because up to that point they had never seen him. And then somebody tiptoed into her cubicle and said, what's it like to be married to a black man? And she said, I just sat there stunned. She said, I didn't say anything. And then they turned around and walked off. I said, tomorrow you go back. And you say, excuse me, you asked me yesterday, what's it like to be married to a black man? You tell them that's the only man you have been married to. This idea of how we define other people's lives. People have walked up to me and asked me, why don't they have kids? I'm like, I don't know. That's not my issue. They are a family. Families look different. I was an only child. I was born in the 50s. My mother was an only child. She was born in 1926. In 26, they didn't even know how to stop having children. People looked at her like she was crazy because she was an only child. What's wrong with her family? This idea of them moving, moving up that ladder to cultural competency, where we have worked on ourselves, we have learned, we can discuss, we can talk, and then guess what? We start all over again, because it is a big journey. It's time for true transformation. We have band-aided this stuff long enough. We have band-aided it. We have said, okay, you can be here, but you can't be totally in, but you're here and it's okay, and I really love you, and I got some friends who are white, and I got some friends who are black, and I know and some best, best friends who are Native American, and all that. Like, that's supposed to make it all right. The idea of it's time for transformation. And people of color, we need as much transforming as anybody else. This idea of we talked about change. One of our earlier speakers, she talked about change, doing things differently. That fixes the past. And we're trying to do that. But the new way of transforming is making sure that a new way of being creates the future. What are you going to do in your organization, in your family, in your life to create a new way of being that creates the future? The way those teachers in that segregated school created a future for us. It's time to shift. We've shifted some of our behaviors in public. What is it they say? How do you talk and how do you act when, when, when people can't hear you, when people can't see you? And now it's time to shift in our values. Do we really value everybody? Again, I have as much to learn from a Generation Z as she has to learn from me. I don't know it all. I got much to learn. So this idea of transformation, servant leaders are part of transforming. 
And the first person that transforms is us. Some of it is about unlearning. We've been taught lots of things. We've absorbed lots of things. I did some work with AmeriCorps members years ago, and we'd sit around in circles, and we talk about differences and biases. And it was this young African-American man who wanted us to be sure that we knew that he was different, that he was special, and that he wanted to be in AmeriCorps because he wanted to serve his community. And he didn't want anybody to think anything bad about him and don't assume that he was a gangbanger just because he came from the inner city. And he laid it out there. He put it out there. He told us what to, what to think and who, we, who he was and who he was not. So we're sitting around talking about bias and talking about jokes. Now, he had already told us that he didn't go for that. And then he's sitting there and he says, but you know, when I hear those jokes about blondes, I think they're kind of funny. And I sat there and I waited because I knew they would come for him. And I knew who would come for him. And one of the young ladies, and we had formed our team. They were a group and they were, it was comfortable. And she said to him, I don't think those jokes are funny. And he said, well, I'm not talking about you. She said, I'm a blonde. You said you think those jokes are funny. I can chew gum. I can screw in a light bulb. I can do them all at the same time. <laughs> What's so funny about that? He said, I'm sorry. I never thought about it that way. You see, we can't view the world through our own lens. We have to look through other people's lens. And sometimes that listening is OK for the silence. Nothing I could have said would have changed his mind. This blonde, blue-eyed girl came for him. Because again, he had told us what he, he wanted us to know about him, and she finally put it out there. And I thought, we can check that box. That's done. Organizations don't transform, people do. You can have all the workshops in the world. You can have all the trainers come in in the world. It's about people transformation. All we can do is guide you. All we can do is have materials for you. If you have not seen this book, Servant Leadership Institute book, this is, we're not talking about diversity and inclusion because it's nice. This goes to the bottom line. It is nice. But if everybody feels included, people work harder. If everybody feels valued, people stay longer. We got a better environment. This idea of individual transformation Shift the culture through servant leadership, through having conversations about diversity, about inclusion. Are you able? See, I think we're able. Right now, we are in a spot where a lot of people don't think we are able to come together. And I'm not making a political statement. We've been drifting this way for a long time. This idea that we can't, people like, it's never going to work. I have people who, my age, who say, all that work that they did in the 60s, it's gone. And I'm saying it is not. It is not. It is one person at a time. It is us putting ourselves in check. It is us not giving up hope. It is me believing that my grandson and my children, who are now adults, and that in the future, people will come to a place where everyone is accepted, where nobody has to change. And then we got it inside of races. We need wine and more cookies to start talking about this. No, we really do. Because when you look at I, my parents were both dark skinned and I was light skinned. The whole concept of being dark skinned. When I grew up, 
Dark-skinned people didn't get much love. They didn't get much love. The little dark-skinned girls were always the one token girl in the talent show and all that. My father went to a school, a segregated school in the 1940s, led by a well-educator who said, no one will represent this school who is darker than a brown bag. Blair T. Hunt had the brown bag test. So if you were darker than a brown bag, you were not going to represent that school. This was in 1944. This was a black man talking to a bunch of black kids. I think they were colored at that time. I think we hadn't become Negroes then. I think they were just colored children back then. Depends on the year, whatever we've been called. My dad said he was hurt because he won the dance contest. Darker than a brown bag. Boy up under him, probably about my skin tone. He got to represent the school. He got the flu. He couldn't do it. My dad was the first dark kid that represented the school. Mr. Hunt's test was gone by then. It was gone. When Lupito Nyong'o, who you all know, who is an actress, beautiful dark-skinned woman, when they put her on the cover of Vogue, dark-skinned women of all ages cried because nobody had ever told them they were beautiful before because you had to be light-skinned to be pretty. So now that you know what you're going to do, and now you got to be young to be pretty, this whole idea of youth, you got to be young. It was an article that I put on my Facebook page about the invisibility of the older woman. The invisibility of the older woman, that as older women, we become invisible. People don't see us as real people. They don't see us as three-dimensional. They see us as one-dimensional. They put us in the old box. And I have nothing else to offer. How do we do this? How, how do we do this to people? That's not what servant leaders do. We see everybody as three-dimensional, whether they're old, whether they're young, regardless of their race, regardless of what side of the tracks they came from, what neighborhood, regardless of what degree or no degree, regardless of what language they speak, their religion, their sexual orientation, their abilities. Everybody is three-dimensional, because guess what? Each one of us was created individually and wonderfully by someone who knew a lot better than we did. So now that you know, what you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You gotta stay engaged. If you're not engaged, you gotta get engaged. Read, talk, share. It's okay. People say, we can't talk about diversity. We can't talk about inclusion. We can't talk about race. We have to. Talking and listening is the beginning of transformation. Speak your truth. You can't fix it. Don't try to make it nice. You know, we love to fix it up. That's not what I meant to say. I didn't mean to say that. It is okay to experience discomfort. Sometimes it feels funny to have these conversations. It feels uncomfortable. Your hair stands up. You got to take risks. You got to be the one who's willing to say, we're going to have a conversation about diversity and inclusion. And it's okay. Listen, listen, listen. Please listen to understand and expect and accept non-disclosure. Again, this is not a 45-minute workshop. This is a life transformation. I love this quote that says, I'm only one, but I'm one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And I will not let what I cannot do interfere with what I can do. Each one of you can do something.
each one of you are able. You know you are able. You've got the power. You may not have the skills, but you're going to work on it. You've got the opportunity. If there ever was a time when there was an opportunity for us to work on this, it's now. Serve everybody. The nine behaviors. We have to trust people who don't look like us. We have to trust people who don't sound like us. And we have to live our values. I just left the Servant Leadership Conference. So how are we going to treat people? You know, again, are we going to go back to those old behaviors? We need to listen more. People, well, that happened 150 years ago. Why are we still talking about it? Because somebody's still hurting over it. That's why. Think about your thinking. Think about why do I think the things that I think? And what do I need to do to adjust that thinking? Add value to others. Walk up to people who are unlike you and talk with them. And allow people to come up to you and talk to you. Demonstrate courage. You got to be brave. This is brave stuff. Brave, brave stuff. Increase your influence and then live your transformation. You have to commit. Make a commitment. We're not making you sign in blood or anything like that. But you need to commit to becoming an advocate for diversity, inclusion, and cultural competence. That means that you call people on their stuff in a gentle and loving way. You ask people to help to understand. We can't be quiet anymore. We can't. Somehow Dr. King knew this a long time ago, that our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. This stuff matters. People matter. Servant leadership matters. Inclusion matters. Biases matter. If we're going to be the people who we say we want to be, and that's why we're here, because we came here to change, we want to be different. If we're going to be the people who we say we want to be, if we want to be like Art and Ken, then we can't be silent anymore. And again, it don't mean you're going to march anywhere. It means you may have quiet, crucial conversations with people. Commit. Be courageous. Speak up. Speak out. Be inclusive. Increase your cultural competence. Live your transformation. Change your thinking. Open your minds. Serve, lead, grow. Thank you. Wow, isn't Vicki good? For more info on Vicki or to get in touch with her, you can find her on LinkedIn. If you are looking for tools that can help you grow, we have a new digital booklet titled Learning to Serve, 25 Ideas on How to Grow as a Servant Leader. You can download this book now by visiting our website at ServantLeadershipInstitute.com. Thank you once again for listening and allowing us to add value to your day.